wondered yourself. Maybe that's something that you need to ponder upon today. But of what advantage to us is Christ's ascension? And here's the answer that they're going to be thinking about today. Christ is now advocating for us in the presence of his Father and also sends us his Spirit. And that is a part of good news that is not just relegated to the children in the children's area. That is good news for us right now, regardless of how old or young we might be. Christ is ever-present right now advocating for us in the, pre- in the presence of his Father and also sends us his Spirit. Now, I'm going to throw out a, a, a couple of details here for you before we uh, begin our time here. 1993. A black Lexus LS 400. She was the coolest car I've ever driven. She went about 10 miles per gallon. And I named her, very creatively, Lexi. I don't know whatever happened to her. I think she got repoed or towed away or something. I don't know. It wasn't my car. It was my mom's car. What I realized as an early Christian, I was about 18 years old, is that oftentimes, this is me looking back now, oftentimes theological convictions are oftentimes born out of necessity. Uh, And my theological conviction that I should find a local church to worship in that wasn't an hour and a half away when gas was $4 a gallon, I think that's when this seed of conviction was born, that I should probably worship locally. And so, I was about a year-old Christian looking for a a, a helpful, healthy, like-minded church uh, to worship in and worship with. I found one nearby. And in my time driving my 1993 Lexus LS 400, uh, this this is the type of car, if you can't imagine, um, in the James Bond movies when the warlords, gangsters are driving through the marketplace, and they grab the guy, throw him in the trunk, satellite car phone in the uh, center console, super cool car. I'm driving this car to a church, I had no idea what I was about to walk into. I walked into this church that was going through a significant period of transition. The pastor previous to the, uh, the senior pastor of that church when I came in uh, was discovered to have been uh, nursing a pornography addiction uh, in his church office on his church computer. Now, he was discovered, so meaning he was caught, not he confessed it. Now, the church was going through a significant period of upheaval and transition. This pastor, rather than confessing the sin and repenting of it and stepping down from ministry to be restored and, and, and reconcile and, and repair the damage that was done, he simply moved to a new town not too far away and simply just started a new church. Well, pastors need to be employed, I get it. But damage was done. Sexual immorality in the church caused great damage to the congregation. Uh, A few years later, uh, I grew up a little bit more in my Christian faith, and I discovered uh, the most stunning preacher I've ever listened to. Uh, The the most engaging sermon series, and I will never forget his sermon series through the Gospel of John. Uh, There was no other person that I would listen to who would captivate both my mind and my heart who was both intellectual and affectionate. And then I got the dreaded news. Hey, Chris, did you hear? And my stomach just dropped. 
he was once my hero. And now he was caught having engaged in decades-long adultery, just absolutely devastating his church. I I recently listened to a podcast where uh, his elders at that church were speaking about how the church went through a period of transition and health and uh, have come through the devastation uh, more greatly restored than where they were several years ago. Praise God for grace and praise God for restoration. You are probably aware of countless stories of other pastors and ministry leaders who have engaged in sexually immoral relationships, who have engaged in inappropriate communications with church members and even with minors in the church, those who have engaged in activities that were, needless to say, deeply problematic. And when caught, they have feigned repentance or they've outright denied what was obviously sinful. And rather than owning their sin, they've left their church. They were responsible for damaging to take on a staff position with a different ministry or church elsewhere. You may have even heard of revered Christian leaders who have spoken to thousands and published dozens of books only to be caught engaging in sexual immorality. This seems to be a trend that just follows us. At least seems to follow me. Everywhere I've gone, I have seen sexual immorality in some form or another. Now, when we consider this subject of sexual immorality in the church, I have noticed in my own pastoral observations a very, very quick uh, impulse to blame the Roman Catholic priests. If your knee-jerk impulse is to quickly turn your attention to the Roman Catholic priests, stop. Because the Houston Chronicle report on sexual abuse within Southern Baptist churches and the fallout that soon followed would say, we got some work to do as Baptists. Don't be so quick to be blaming the Roman Catholic house when our house has mess of its own. I'm not speaking about our local church. Specifically, I'm talking about Southern Baptist churches in general. Friends, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, friends, Paul's first line in chapter 5, verse 1, could have easily been the headlining title in the Washington Post. What do we do with sexual immorality in the church? There is terribly sad news, and I promise that there's going to be some good news in my sermon today. But there is terribly sad news that Christians are not immune to the threat and the power of devastation of sexual immorality in the local church. If you have not seen this in uh, examples outside, or if you have not experienced this personally, you can rest assured that sexual immorality in the church has the power to destroy the local congregation. It does. Now, when we think about sexual immorality in the church, there's probably a couple of uh, items, uh, uh, examples that come to mind. But before I get to those, uh, those categories... I recognize, uh, parents, a couple of disclaimers, I recognize that you might have some older children in the room with you this morning. Uh, You might personally feel a little uncomfortable about the subject we're talking about. Uh, Let me reassure you, uh, I have heard that uh, one of my Esther sermons was a bit spicy. I am not aiming to be spicy in this sermon. I am not aiming to be unhelpful or bombastic because I'm a young preacher. I'm aiming to be biblically clear, and I hope that my sermon will be very helpful and will wash you with God's grace. Uh, And so parents, if you um, 
recognize what we're uh, considering through the scriptures, this is a really good opportunity for you to have some really important conversations with your children. Now, for others of us, uh, sexual immorality and the very subject of this discussion just brings upon significant guilt and shame and self-condemnation. Brothers and sisters, whatever your experience may be, let me remind you and encourage you, uh, because Paul does this all throughout his epistles, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so if you are in Christ Jesus and the painful sting of the shame of sexual immorality haunts you now, there is healing in the hands of our king. His hands work healing, and there is no condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus. There are others of you who have been the victims of sexual immorality, whether it was a spouse who committed adultery, whether it was a trusted family member or a trusted uh, friend or neighbor who uh, abused you sexually. Friend, there is healing for you. God will not cast you out. And if you feel anger against the assault that was done against you, friend, you can trust God is surely angrier than you can ever be. If you are someone who is presently in the midst of abuse, this is a place for you to find safety and refuge. You can come forward and you will not be judged or shamed and you will find help and restoration. If you are someone who is the abuser, let me give you a stark warning that this is not a community for you to enjoy your abuse. But let me also give you a hopeful invitation. There is life in repentance. Now, different kinds of sexual immorality. When we think about this subject, there's probably a couple of categories that quickly come to mind. As a pastor, a couple of things that I often hear is, Pastor, I'm struggling to read my Bible. It's a, kind of a normal thing that I hear often. Another thing that I hear is, Chris, I'm viewing pornography. Friends, I hope to rouse you awake on this Sunday morning. 80% of adolescents have reported to accessing online pornography. This was a study done just in 2021, so I would imagine that that number is probably hovering around the same number. Over 80% of online pornography access is now done through the use of mobile devices. Almost all of us probably have a very expensive small computer in our pockets. It is absolutely stunning that the average age of accidental or purposeful exposure to pornography amongst adolescents is now between the ages of 11 and 12. Uh, so much more could be said on the subject. I'll, I'll speak more to that here in a moment. But there's another form of sexual immorality that often comes to our minds. And it's adultery. Scriptures speak of it. Uh, the Pharisee in our uh, reading through Luke mentioned he was so happy that he wasn't an adulterer. One study, according to the NIH, showed that 60% of American divorces were a result of adultery. And in another study, among the final straws that led to divorce, 77% of respondents identified infidelity as the number one reason contributing to their divorce. That, that goes to show that this is a problem. 
According to a recent Gallup poll, whatever you might think about polls and surveys, but according to a recent Gallup poll that looked at the changing views of sexuality in America over the last 20 years, the poll showed that American views on the acceptability of sex between an unmarried man and woman increased from 53% to 73%. That's a stark jump. The American views on acceptability of divorce increased from 59% to 79%. The views on uh, the acceptability on the views of uh, uh, polygamy, excuse me, the views on the acceptability of polygamy increased from 7% to 20% in the last 20 years. Now, if you're somebody that reads those statistics and you're like, my goodness, what has our country come to? Our country used to be so great. Stop. Stop thinking like that. Read your Bibles and pay real careful attention. Because things may have changed in 20 years, but the sinfulness of the human condition has not. It's only exposing itself in different ways. So don't think about how great life used to be. Think about how great life will be when your great King Jesus restores all things and the stain of sin is no more. Aim higher if that's you. Now, let me ask you, church, a question. How would we respond, we as a congregation, how would we respond if we found out that 20% of our congregation had cancer? Uh, we would probably shed tears. I think visitations might even increase. I think our kitchens would probably be busier for making meals. Probably the same type of response when uh, or if we found out that 20% of our congregation had lost a child. What, what, how would you respond? What would our response be if we found out that 20% of the congregation uh, had been fired from employment? And yet, one in four women have been or will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime. One in six men have been or will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime. This is a subject that a lot of people just don't want to talk about. Uh, we, we, we think that, well, we should just keep sexuality kind of, you know, uh, in the privacy of our own homes, and we just don't talk about it. But friends, when we think about sexual assault, and Southern Baptist churches, after the Houston Chronicle report and the Washington Post interviews, the investigation by the Department of Justice, we can't ignore this, and we shouldn't. The damage of sexual assault is not simply confined to that one thing that happened that one night in that one place. Friends, if you've never thought about this, sexual assault makes the victim feel alone and unimportant and unworthy of sympathy. It tempts them to deny and minimize what happened to them to cope with the pain and the trauma that lasts a lifetime. God hates sexual assault. He hates sexual abuse. Sexual abuse and sexual assault in the scriptures is never looked at favorably. Just read what happened to Dinah in the Old Testament. Sexual assault attacks the victim's sense of identity and tells them that they are filthy, foolish, defiled, and worthless. It makes them feel like they are nothing. And have you noticed that the gospel communicates the very opposite of what sexual assault com communicates to its victims? Sexual assault is shameful and it burdens the victims with feelings of nakedness and rejection and dirtiness. It's a painfully confusing experience that takes a lifetime of healing and counseling. 
It attacks victims with guilt that leads to feelings of condemnation, judgment, and self-blame. Sexual assault and abuse can fill the victim with despair, feeling like they have lost something, whether it's their innocence, their youth, their health, trust, confidence, security. All of those feelings of loss can deepen the person's experience of hopelessness and despair. And then, on top of that, depression and fear and an inability to trust others just can seemingly add to the inescapable weight and experience of despair. The gospel speaks to these things. And my dear brother or sister, if you're one of the four or one of the six, if you have experienced this, the gospel speaks to you. God speaks to you. And your God is a strong defender. Your God is a strong advocate. And in this church, you will find strong defenders and advocates. I will be there for you. And I am certain there will be a long line of brothers and sisters behind me. But it is impossible for us, dear brothers and sisters, to ignore sexual immorality or to just minimize it as if it has no significant impact on human beings who are made in the image of God. If you've ever wondered what makes a human being worthy of dignity and honor and respect, the good book starts it in the very first page. We have been made in the image of God. Sexual sin in the church presents Tragic problems. And yet, church, God gives us wonderful opportunities to show the world a distinct way and a distinct Savior. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me now to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. The letter to the Ephesians is found in the New Testament if you're new to reading the Bible. The larger numbers are the chapter numbers there and the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along with the Pew Bibles just by turning to page 1162, 1162 in the Black Pew Bibles. I will read the passage. You can also follow along on the screens behind me. Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to be looking at specifically at verses 3 to 9. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no foolishness, nor, or, excuse me, let there be no filthiness, filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Friends, if you are taking notes, the main idea of our time this morning is a really simple one, and it's simply the church is a distinct community whose sexual ethics are born out of faith in Christ and demonstrate the distinct holiness of the Lord. Say that one more time. The church is a distinct community whose sexual ethics are born out of faith in Christ and demonstrate the distinct holiness of the Lord. 
we're going to consider three observations in this brief passage this morning. So uh, for all of you note takers, I've tried to keep my outline very tight for you. Three observations. Number one, a distinct community. Let's look at verses three and four, a distinct community. So Paul, he opens up this brief uh, section of scripture demonstrating that the church is to be known as a distinct community. Notice how he says here uh, that sexual immorality or impurity or covetousness, it must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Right? So right out the gate, we are to understand that when Paul is speaking about the church, he isn't referring to a group of disparate individuals who are isolated, just kind of uh, keeping uh, you know, their own quiet times to themselves, and it's just me and Jesus in church right now. No, he is speaking to a unique, distinct community of people who have been brought together, a new priesthood of believers, a distinct humanity within humanity there in Ephesus. This language is a corporate language when he says things like, among you, uh, and among the saints. This is plural. There's more than one person involved. Paul is speaking to and about a distinct community of people. The entire letter of Ephesians shows us and demonstrates for us that the church there in Ephesus and here in Hagerstown now is a supernaturally formed community. Listen, Pastor Josh planted the church. Somebody planted uh, the first Baptist church of Hagerstown in 1889, yes. But this community that is present here is supernaturally formed. The local church is formed by the Spirit of God through the work of the Son of God for the glory of God. The community here is formed by God and it is composed of God's redeemed saints. So when you come to church... If you are tempted to sit by yourself and not talk to anyone, let me encourage you, take that moment of silence and look at all the heads around you because what you're going to see is a unique tapestry of God's work amongst the saints around you. And then when you think about how God has worked to save that girl with black hair and that lady with silver hair and that fellow with no hair, then you can come up and say to them, I was thinking about how God brought this church together, and I'm so encouraged. And then you might make a new friend as you leave the church. The church is a distinct community of people. Now, how is the supernaturally community formed? Now, a couple of quick hints. We are in Ephesians chapter 5. This is a six-chapter letter. So we're towards the end of the letter. The first half of this letter is Paul just going on a gospel diatribe. He is explaining what God has done to redeem sinners. He is explaining what God has done to bring about the church. And in the second half of the letter to the Ephesians, Paul explains, this is how a distinct community formed by God, saved by God, saved for God, lives according to God's word. Now, if you notice, though, in verse 3, we open with the word but. So what is the but there for? You're going to want to look a couple of verses uh, previously. Chapter 5 begins, verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So, 
the Ephesians are reminded at the beginning of the letter of what Jesus has done to save them. They're reminded in the middle of the letter what Jesus has done to save them. They are reminded here towards the end of the letter what Jesus has done to save them. Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us. Christian, there are a lot of theological textbooks out there, and I am a staunch proponent of you reading a good textbook. But perhaps the most sophisticated aspect of your personal theology just simply needs to be Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. There is no more sophistication than that. The Son of God laying down his life because he loved a group of unlovable, ragtag people like us? And it wasn't just any offering. This was a fragrant offering. It smelled good. This was satisfying. This sacrifice to God was done in love. And we as the church are then called to be imitators of God as beloved children because that's what we are. We are to walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. We are new men and new women. We belong to a new community of his redeemed saints. Friends, uh, uh, in 2020, I discovered the sport of powerlifting. Super, super fun sport. Really cool community of people. And I really enjoy going to the Y on a regular basis and lifting those barbells. But you know what? Even though I am now a part of this uh, niche community of powerlifters, I'm not super impressive with the sport, but I am a part of this community. I'm part of a deeper community, a community that does not weigh my performance, a community that does not look at how strong I must be today or tomorrow. I am a part of a distinct community of redeemed saints, Every single individual that I run into who is a Christian in this local church has a much more impressive track record than any powerlifter in this niche powerlifting community. Doesn't matter how much you bench press or deadlift or squat. Jesus took your sin and gave you new life and you now walk in peace and friendship with God? How much more impressive can you be? It's not even because of you. It's because of Jesus. The work of Jesus in the lives of the church should leave us in awe. Now, this work of Jesus continues in the form of the Christian community's ethics. This new life that we live in, this new way that we walk, the Christian community's ethics flow from our distinct faith in Jesus Christ. Many of us approach the subject of dealing with sexual immorality or sexual purity in, in, in a way that we try to say, well, once I've mastered this, then God's going to be pleased. Once I've beat that porn addiction, then God's going to be pleased with me. That may be what you are tempted to think, but that is not what the scriptures are leading you to live. That is not what the scriptures are saying. The ethics that we follow, the ethics in which we walk, they are not the basis of our faith, as if to say, God will be more pleased when I am a little bit cleaner because I've scrubbed myself hard enough. The ethics that we walk and follow are the outworking of this distinct faith in the Son of God. 
who loved us and gave himself up for us, who gave us new life and raised us in newness of life into a new eternal life with God. The church is a distinct community with distinct individuals saved by a unique Savior. We are not like the rest of the community or communities around us. There are many churches that want to appeal to those who are different from us by sharing how similar we are. And they are probably well-meaning. They are probably doing really good work in the community. However, we are not like the rest of the community. Have you considered how absolutely distinct and uniquely strange the very foundations of our faith is as opposed to the worldviews of the culture around us? Think about that. Our faith is peculiar. It is strange. We believe in a distinct creator God, Father Almighty, who created not only the heavens and the earth that we can now see with the James Webb Telescope, but he created all of mankind in his own holy image to know him and to love him and to worship him and to walk with him. We believe in a very strange belief that every human being is worthy of dignity and respect and love and has value, but not because they've earned it, not because they've proven themselves that they can lift enough weight to be worthy of respect, but because this gracious and loving creator God has bestowed worth upon all of us in the fact that we have been made in the image of God. We also believe in a very strange thing in the fact that, uh, in our cultural moment anyway, we believe in the distinctness of the fallen human condition. We confess that every single human being regardless of how nice and polite and helpful they might be, has a sinful nature that rebels against God and stands in enmity and rebellion against him. It's kind of strange when that customer service rep is really, really helpful with you on the phone. Yet we also believe in the uniqueness of the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was, strangely enough, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, one of the distinguishing markers of our Christian faith is that rather than rebellious subjects being punished for the treachery and rebellion of their sin against this unique God, the Son of God, truly God and truly man, laid down his life as a substitute for us. We believe that God came down, lived a perfect life, died in our place as a substitute, and satisfied the wrath of God against our sin. And now, all who would turn and believe in this good news and this good, distinct, unique Son of God, there is life eternal evermore. But the strangeness doesn't end there. Not only do we believe in his unique life and substitutionary death and burial, we also believe, and for good historical reasons, and we'll consider this again next week, that on the third day, Jesus Christ rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come to judge the living and the dead. It is resting in and receiving in this distinctly good news that we are then able to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
Have you considered how unique this good news is that we have received? Now, having received this good news, what then are we to do? Paul says then, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. I'm going to dive more, more deeply here. Sexual immorality. Friends, this is not the only place where Paul is using this term. In the Greek, the Greek word literally is porneia. Probably already understand what the root word of this is. Pornography. Porneia in the Greek refers to sexual immorality. He's using this almost catch-all term to refer to any and all forms of sexual sin. Adultery, fornication, pedophilia, acts of homosexuality. And he uses this phrase all over his letters. Consider 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 9 through 11. For those of you who have a particularly uh, sensitive conscience and uh, deal with um, uh, uh, an onslaught of self-condemnation, highlight verse 11. Let me read this passage for you. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, another one of the things that I oftentimes run into as a pastor is folks will ask, I just don't know what God wants me to do with my life. God answers that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Friends. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 might not tell you whether or not you should go to med school or become an auto mechanic, but it surely does tell you that God's will for your life, no matter where you are in your vocation, is your sanctification, that you grow in a greater conformity to Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, again, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. There, there, there's no other way to interpret this verse. Paul's not saying, hey, go ahead and flirt with sexual immorality. No, he says flee from it. Literally, pick up your bag and run. You might just need to leave your bag and run. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Flee from sexual immorality. Galatians chapter 5, verses 18 to 19. Flee from sexual immorality. He says it again. Flee from sexual immorality. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, and the list goes on and on and on. Paul seems to sound like a broken record. Run. Don't walk. Flee. Don't flirt with the temptation. Go. Stay away. Do not touch. Do not handle. Don't think this is safe. This will burn you. Flee. The church is a distinct community with a distinct faith. We have a distinct code of ethics in which in this cultural moment, 
our form of ethics is oftentimes viewed as bigoted. But have you been able to see all through these various verses that I've walked us through, and particularly through the gospel, that the Christian gospel and the Christian message is the most respectful worldview of any person in the world? There is no other worldview that says you are worthy of respect not based on your performance. We may be called bigoted. Your neighbor may not want to invite you to uh, the, 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 the picnic and the cookout in the neighborhood because of your bigoted beliefs. We possess a worldview, we possess a good news that not only espouses that everyone is worthy of honor and respect, that the human body is sacred and should be uh, uh, treated with uh, great care, we possess a worldview that honors human bodies. We are a distinct community. The church is also given, in our second observation, a distinct warning. Look at verses 5 and 6. The church is given a distinct warning. For you may be sure of this. So Paul's trying to get your attention again. You don't need to wonder. You can be sure. You may be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of Christ and God. Friends, this is the type of passage that when someone who is struggling with sexual sin looks at and they wonder, maybe I'm not a part of God's kingdom. Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe, maybe I'm just a big fraud. There are certain questions that we must consider. There are, there are certain thoughts that we must think about. C certain things that we ought to consider based on the fruit of our lives. But the fruit of our lives is not the basis of our salvation. The fruit of our lives demonstrates that God is presently at work in our lives. What Paul is getting at in this verse is not, hey, Christian, if you stumble, you're not a part of the distinct community. Paul is warning the Ephesians that if these things, sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness, if these things identify the whole of your being and the whole of your character, this is what you are, then you must be sure you are not in this distinct community, nor will you have an inheritance with the kingdom of Christ. Paul goes on. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. What's, what's interesting about the church in Ephesus is that Ephesus was a deeply pagan culture. The temple of Diana or Artemis was this beautiful building, beautifully constructed there outside of Ephesus. Temple prostitutes would run rampant. Young boys would be used for sexual pleasure and perversion there in the temple of Diana. Paul, when he reminds the Christians, listen, you are a distinct community. You are not like the rest of the Ephesians. You have been saved by God, for God, and you have a new code of ethics to live amongst the Ephesians that is different from how they're living. Paul is reminding them, listen, you are going to be tempted and you will be tempted to be deceived by those who engage in immoral acts and immoral behaviors and impure uh, 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 thoughts and deeds. Don't be deceived. 
don't think that you can engage with a little bit of what they got going on over there and that you will still be fine. Let no one deceive you with empty words. The words preached in the temple of Artemis were empty. And that which they were indulging in are the very things for which the wrath of God was coming. We are given a distinct warning. It's also important to remember that warnings are often coming from those who love you or those who have your safety and your well-being in mind. I don't think the fire department loves me, but I think when the fire department tells me to make sure that the smoke detector batteries are replaced, I think they have my safety in mind. Paul loved the church at Ephesus, and he gives them a loving warning. Listen, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. We're given a distinct warning. And those previous passages I read uh, uh, earlier, those are the outworkings, again, of Paul's loving warning to the various churches. Do not be deceived. Flee from sexual immorality. Our third observation that we're given, a distinct calling. The church is given a distinct calling. Look at verses 7 through 9. Therefore, do not be part partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of life, fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Do you wonder what you must do as a Christian? You must walk as children of light. We are no longer children of darkness. We are children of light. At one time, we were darkness. This sounds a lot like what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You have been brought from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into his kingdom of light. So now, you must walk in this way. If you are parents to young children, you are probably oftentimes telling your children what not to do and what to do. And you may be uh, uh, facing the question, but why? Well, because you are my son, and you will walk as I am instructing you. However, parents know when we are instructing our children that we are instructing them in all that is good and right and true and helpful. Paul's doing the same thing. Paul is reminding us here in Ephesians chapter 5 that as members of a distinct community who have received distinct warnings and a distinct code of ethics, we have been given a distinct calling. We may look and sound and act and cook and smell and talk and look like the neighbors around us, but, but we are ultimately not like the rest of the communities. We have been given a distinct calling. Walk as children of light. Now, three observations for uh, the rest of our time. I, I want to dismantle a, a, a couple of things because what I, what I recognize in a, a sermon like this and in a, a subject like this is that many of us, we feel guilt, we feel shame, we feel... Uh, we just don't know how we'll ever overcome sexual immorality. Some of us have been victims. Others have been uh, uh, just willfully wanting to dive headlong into sexual sin. 
But brothers and sisters, wherever you are on that spectrum of experience, um, I, I, I want to encourage you and, and help you and walk with you, um, whether you're someone who is struggling with sexual sin or you've overcome it, but all of us will be tempted to believe certain lies. Uh, and much of what I want to share with you now uh, has come from a variety of different biblical counseling resources, but if you're taking notes... Let's dismantle seven lies that we're tempted to believe. You may be thinking when you read a passage like this, well, this really doesn't apply to me because I'm not involved in a sexual relationship. That's false. This word still applies to you. God's word applies to you across the board, wherever you are. Uh, you might be tempted to believe, well, I'm married, so I don't have to worry about sexual immorality. That is also false. You must think about what the Lord has shown us in his word. You might think about, well, I don't really have these same types of temptations. That's fine, but you must still flee sexual immorality, and sexual immorality must not be named among you. So, seven lies that we are tempted to believe about sexual temptation. Lie number one, that sex is a biological need. Sex is a biological need. This is a pervasive lie. It is a pernicious lie. Whether you're in the grocery checkout lines or in the psychologist's office, our culture will inundate us with this lie that sex is a biological need. Now, as one biblical counselor shared that I found to be particularly helpful here in our time, he said, sex, as a part of the covenant of marriage, is meant to be one of the highest joys we can experience. God created sex in marriage as the place where loving devotion and total focus on another person perfectly overlap with total joy in your own body and spirit. But this does not make sex a need. Jesus was not married. Jesus never once experienced sexual intimacy. So surely if the perfect human, Jesus, the man more in tune with the will of God more than anyone in history can forego sex, then it cannot be a necessary component of life as a human being. If you want to think about what the normal human being is, it's not you or me, it's Jesus Christ, the man without sin. Scripture knows of our need for the living God and constantly assures us that God provides everything we truly need. But our true needs are those found in the Lord's Prayer and the Sermon on the Mount. Life, bread, water, clothes, shelter. Friends, sex is not on that list. In the resurrection... God gives us the ultimate answer to all our needs, presence with Jesus. Even our genuine needs on this earth, life, food, shelter, employment, what have you, they are all foretastes of the eternal salvation and abundance to come in the presence of Jesus Christ. Lie number two, life is all about sex. So pop culture inundates us with this. This is just left and right everywhere we look. There's probably not a single movie that we can go to where some form of sexual satisfaction is not uh, put up on the screen or enjoyed or, or whatever else. You may be tempted to believe that getting as much sexual satisfaction in your life today is what your life is ultimately about. That's a lie. Nobody wants to put a massive investment into a bad stock, uh, a, a bad set of index funds. 
Uh, when you know that the dude selling you a bill of goods is a fraud, you don't want to write him a check. So don't believe this lie that life is all about sexual satisfaction. The Christian's life is so much more than how much pleasure we can experience before our time is up. The Christian's life is a person, Jesus, who gave his life up for you. If you memorize any verse of scripture this week, this month, this year, let it be Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You might be tempted to believe, but I really want to enjoy this good gift of sex that God has given. Friends, I don't know if you will ever be able to experience that in the covenant of marriage, but if you are in Christ, you have been given a better gift, a gift with far greater satisfaction, a gift with far greater peace and joy. Your life is not what you make of it. Your life is the person of Jesus Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Line number three, marriage makes the problem go away. This is something that many married folks have talked about in, in counseling rooms and, 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 and with one another. But friends, marriage is not the magic bullet that kills sexual immorality because a lack of sex is not the problem. It does not matter how frequently you may be able to enjoy sex. The lack of sex is not the problem. The problem with sexual immorality is the problem of lust, and lust is never satisfied. There is something about internet pornography, the, the novelty, the, the, the ability to be able to find something different and something else. It's all part of the allure and this lie that you will be satisfied if you find the next one. You won't. Lust is never satisfied. Lust is an ugly monster that cannot be tamed. It must be killed. Sin, by its very nature, always lusts for more. There's a reason why when married spouses who view online pornography tend to hide their pornography usage from their spouse. They feel guilt. They feel a sense of shame. Marriage alone does not make the problem of sexual immorality go away. Line number four, it's only a matter of time until I fall. This is a common lie and a common train of thought that many young men specifically believe. It's only a matter of time before I fall, so I might as well just go ahead and do it now. Well, if God's grace abounds, shall I abound in sin? By no means. Now, friends, I understand that the battle with sin, especially a life-dominating sin like sexual sin and sexual immorality, is rarely without setbacks. I, I don't want you to think that I do not sympathize with your struggle with the setbacks of sexual sin. But you may be tempted to think that it's just simply a matter of time before I fall. Well, the answer to that question, well, won't I just fall again? Yes and no. Yes, you will continue to fall into many sins during your life. But God gives us grace, and he forgives the repentant soul, even seven times 70. 
So yes, you will fall. And yes, you will sin. And yes, God will still be there. And yes, Jesus will still love you. And yes, you will still find reconciliation and restoration. No, it's not simply a matter of time that you will fall again. You can say no to sexual sin. You can say no to sexual sin today. And you will have that same capacity tomorrow and the next day. Uh, Just as an aside, I can't have sugar in my house. I just can't. There's a bag of uh, a half-open bag of chocolate chips in the in the baking rack in uh, in in the kitchen, and I, I I gotta eat it. I gotta have it. I can't have it in the house. And our grocery budget over the last several months has greatly diminished because my wife has made it very clear we're not having candy in the house. I should probably confess that I ate the kids uh, the the rest of the kids Sour Patch Kids. I can't have candy in the house. It's only a matter of time until I fall to my addiction to sugar. But I can say no. And I can take active steps to make sure that it's not there. I can take steps so that I don't fall again. I can say no. You can say no to sexual sin today. And you will have that same capacity tomorrow. Jesus said, look, if your right eye causes you to sin, grab a spoon and pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, hack that thing off and throw it away. Friends, you may need to take some active and proactive and some productive steps, like taking the door in your bedroom off of its hinges and throwing it out the window. You may need to, uh, and apparently uh, kids are now using dumb phones, you may need to not have a mobile device in your possession. You may need to take the active and radical step of not being somebody who uses the internet. Jesus surely lived a full and abundant life without the internet. It might be a little bit difficult for you, but you can do it too. When a Christian who is struggling with sexual sin feels beaten before they even start, it can be really hard to see the value in fighting. But brothers and sisters, by God's grace, we need to learn to see that life is not an unrelenting desert where God just tells you to toughen up and pass by the watering holes. Rather, life is a path that a man or a woman walks with a shepherd who leads them to still waters where they will find enough to drink and to green pastures where they will find restoration for their weary souls. Line number five, it's not really hurting anyone. This is uh, probably the most common reason people will internally think but will rarely say out loud uh, when they are uh, dabbling with internet pornography. Well, it's not really hurting anybody. It, 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 I, I'm by myself when I'm, I'm viewing pornography. Friends, sexual sin hurts everyone involved even when another person is not technically involved. It hurts everybody. If you're the only person in the room dabbling in sexual sin, it's hurting you. It hurts the women involved in uh, internet pornography. Think about all the women who are displaying themselves for a man's pleasure. They are being prostituted by the demands of male lust. They are often pushed toward anorexia and bulimia and trained to view their identity as utterly bound up in their appearance. When a person looks at pornography, they add their voice to the crowd that pressures that person to believe that they are just sexual objects to be used. Nothing more than sexual junk food for someone's consumption. While 
many uh, of these individuals bear their own responsibility for participating in the creation of pornography, those who view pornography at the very least cheer them on and applaud their descent into a degraded, soulless existence. Clicking on that website makes that person on that screen, makes their dehumanization profitable. Does soulless sound a little bit too strong? But isn't that exactly what pornography really is? It's the worship of the body that ignores the presence of the real person involved. Treating women specifically as sexual objects, and pornography is the purest form of objectification, is to treat them as if they are merely bodies with no souls. As if that were not argument enough, one biblical counselor goes on to say, the pornography industry is inextricably tied into a larger system of evil in our world that abuses and destroys women. We need to be honest about the fact that many seemingly willing participants in the pornography industry are either prisoners of people who use drug addictions to keep them working or are in fact literal sex slaves who are trafficked away from their homes. Still further, Pornography strongly reinforces our cultural acceptance of casual sexual encounters, which in turn increases the rate of divorce and abortions. When a man participates with the porn industry and treats their product as good and desirable, even when he doesn't pay for it, he is effectively casting his vote in favor of all these tragedies. Not to mention, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 reminds us Sin wages war against our own souls. So this private sin is both damning to ourselves and damning to our relationships with others. Line number six. Pornography is better than dealing with real relationships. Looking at pornography feels much easier than dealing with a flesh and blood person who can hurt you, reject you, disdain you, ignore you, or let you down. The virtual people that you view in pornography, on the other hand, they create a powerful fantasy world. They make you feel good for a moment because they never say no. They accept you unconditionally. They make you feel powerful and desirable. They make your desires the center of their attention and they never disappoint. Or if they do, you just click on to the next image or video. So it's not hard to understand why so many find pornography vastly safer than dealing with an actual person in the world of actual, real relationships. But that's a lie. The, the use of pornography is a mockery of real relationships. It's false. It's a, it, it, it's a false promise of false goods. It's selling you a false bill of goods. That's not going to lead you anywhere. Don't believe that lie. Line number seven, God will not forgive me. This is the common lie that those who struggle with sexual sin are quick to believe, that God will not believe me. In one moment, the voice of temptation says, you're going to get all that you want. And as soon as you write that check, the voice of condemnation comes around and says, I can't believe you did that. God won't forgive you for this. God won't love you for this. You're going to have to try to clean yourself up, and you're way too dirty and way too filthy and stained for God to ever love you again. Friends, if you believe this lie, let me ask you, what does the gospel do 
if not deal with guilt. Think about that. What does the gospel do if not deal with guilt? The gospel puts an end to guilt. The, the, the gospel invites those who are guilty to come and lay down their guilt to find freedom and joy and peace with God. The gospel is not for innocent people. It's for the guilty. As one biblical counselor said, guilt is a blessing when it takes us to the cross. The cross is for the unworthy. It's for you and me. Now, this is likely a, uh, a, a deep battle for some. The battle in sexual sin is deeper and wider than we would like to believe. But I do have a few questions that I, I think would be helpful for us to ponder, uh, whether you're dealing with sexual sin or not. But particularly, if, if you're just nonchalant about your sin, uh, these questions, I think, would be helpful for you. Four questions uh, from David Pallison. He asks this. Number one, if you're uh, nonchalant about your sin, is what you are doing simply wrong? Is what you are doing simply wrong? The outright evils of sexual immorality are not hard to identify. Our culture makes the water very muddy and preaches the doctrine that dirty water is good to drink. But the line between love and lust is clear. We are to treat other human beings in a familial way. If you're young and you're dating you're dating somebody, I think 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 will be really helpful. The culture might say what you've got there is a girlfriend or a boyfriend. You can call them whatever you want. Paul says that's your brother or your sister. And 1 Timothy chapter 5 says you must treat them in a familial way. So young men in the room, if you've got a cute girl that you like to visit on Friday nights, she's your sister. That's how Jesus identifies her. That's how Paul identifies her, and that's how I will identify her. Is what you're doing simply wrong? You don't ever sexualize a person whom you are called to treat as your brother or sister, your mother or father, your son or daughter. Sexuality is reserved for marriage. You are to protect other people, not lust after them. Consensual immorality is still immorality. Question number two. Are you captivated by sex? One sure tip-off that you might have an issue with sexual immorality is that your mind is just preoccupied by sex. When something takes up too much airtime in your mind, when you're driven, when you must do it, you just do it, you can't help doing it, you can't not do it, you got a problem. And I'm not talking about Sour Patch Kids. What is your mind captivated by? What are your thoughts captive to? What is driving the space in your thoughts? Number three, do you hide what you are doing? Do you hide what you are doing? Hiding what you are doing and the time you spend doing it is another clear tip-off that we've got a problem. Wrong doesn't love the light unless it becomes shameless and brazen. We hide when we know we've done something wrong. When you create a secret garden of sorts in your life, mutant things will inevitably grow in that dirty soil. 
So we hide from the eyes of others. We hide from the eyes of our own conscience, or we try to. And therefore, we try to hide from the eyes of God. Do you hide what you're doing? Question number four. Do you use sex as a refuge? Do you use sex as a refuge? Boredom, stress, loneliness, and pain tempt us to look for an escape. We want to escape this really bad place we're in and go to this imaginary place that promises momentary peace and pleasure and comfort. And so we're going to find refuge there only to find that this was just a mirage of an oasis and I'm still in a desert and I'm still dying of thirst. And in fact, now I'm thirstier. Do you try to flee discomfort or mask pain? We are meant to look pain in the eyes, to grasp the experience and bring it in hand to our God, to cry out for help, to cry out for deliverance. Because only in him do we find true refuge and to then to do what can be done constructively. Friends, if you're being nonchalant about your sexual sin, I hope that these questions and these lists rouse within you a proper sense of unease. Not to condemn you, not to heap guilt upon you, but to show you that there may be fires burning outside of the appropriate fireplace. Christian, you are a child of light. You don't have to walk in darkness. You don't have to settle for the mirage of the oasis. You don't have to settle for the bad investment that will leave you bankrupt. You can walk as a child of the light. What then can we do? Number one, remember the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself until you get tired of hearing the gospel. And then preach it some more. Remember the gospel. Number two, expose the deeds of darkness. Whether it's sexual abuse or sex, sexual assault, expose the deeds of darkness. If you are tempted to view online pornography or to engage in an adulterous relationship with someone, expose that deed. Don't walk uh, to, uh, to jump off that cliff into headlong into sin. Expose the deed of darkness. Let light shine on that so that you can, number three, walk in the light. You can walk in the light. The one who has brought you into the light will equip you and will walk with you as you walk through darkness into the light. This is exactly what uh, Paul is getting at in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. This might be another passage of scripture that would aid you and comfort you through the week. Paul says in Titus chapter 2, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So we understand God's grace saves people. Paul goes on to say that the very same grace that has appeared to bring salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The very same grace that you have been saved with and saved by and saved through is the very same grace that will be present now to train you to say no to ungodliness 
and say yes to godliness, to say no to sin, and to say yes to righteousness, to say no to a self-centered, selfish, self-focused approach to self-satisfaction, and to live in a way that is self-controlled and upright and godly in this present age as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, if you are struggling with sexual sin, there is a day coming when your blessed hope will come and he will appear and he will bring you before himself and you will be washed clean of all stain, of all filthiness, of all blemish and wrinkle and spot. This same king who will draw you near to himself, who will put an end to all sin, this is the same king who, verse 14, gave himself for us, Christian, Jesus gave himself for you. That sin will only take more from you, but Jesus Christ gave himself for you to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Sexual sin simply abuses and throws away, but our great king takes us he brings us into himself. He gave himself for us. He purifies us. He cleans us. He makes us clean and beautiful, not because we are already beautiful. He makes us beautiful by his own righteousness, and he purifies us for himself. And in his presence, we are his possession. And being possessed by his own hands, there we find eternal life forever. There we find the pleasantness of life with God. You can say no to sexual immorality when you know that there is a greater joy and a greater pleasure to be had in the hands of our great King, Jesus. Trust him today. Remember the gospel. Expose the deeds of darkness. Walk in the light. He will surely be there to walk with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, God, that we do not have to fight sin by ourselves. You walk with us. Your spirit is working within us to sanctify us for you. You will uh, purify us as a people for your own possession. We will be in your possession one day in which your hands will not abuse us and then throw us away, but your hands will comfort us. Your hands will lead us through uh, uh, into uh, uh, new and everlasting life forevermore. God, we are grateful that we have gospel hope. Sexual sin will not have the last word. We are to be a people who is reminded of this and that sexual immorality and all impurity and all covetousness, that is idolatry, should not be named among us. What should be named among us is thanksgiving. And so, Father, we commit this time to you and we thank you we thank you, Lord God, that you will not let sin be victorious in the life of your people. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us. Help us, God, by faith to walk in the light. Help us, God, by faith to remember the gospel and to expose the deeds of darkness and to walk in the light. As children of light, as beloved children of God, Lord, we cry out for your help and we trust and believe that you will complete the good work that you've begun in us to purify for yourself a people for your own possession. Lord, we thank you and we pray all this now 
In Jesus' name, amen.